As just want to bring greetings from Michael and Christy. Uh, they are getting some time with their family and in Kingsburg this weekend after the holidays. So pray for them as they get a, a break over there. And his son Ryan is actually preaching in that church this morning. So um, you can uh, pray for them, as I, as I mentioned, as they're away and getting some rest. Well, we get to start uh, the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. So if you're not already there, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll be in the text in just a minute. But beginnings, I wanted to say as we start this, beginnings are very important, aren't they? So are endings, so are conclusions. But you know if uh, you're into a movie in what, the first five minutes, maybe 15, if it's working for you, or if not, you know, it's, uh, you're like, okay. So I remember watching some movies in, in high school that were just uh, a train wreck, real, real B movies, and you were like, okay, what, what, uh, okay, 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 and you're like 45 minutes in, and we're, I, we still have no, like, what, what's going on here? And, uh, you know, beginnings say a lot, and here we have the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians, not to just put it aside and say, okay, let's get to the good stuff in the, the heart of the book, but beginnings say a lot, uh, whether it's a movie, whether it's a letter, whether it's a book, it is exciting to see what's in the text of 1 Corinthians this morning, and we get to look at it in these first just three verses as we begin, one of the most, you could say, not, not to say that it is more important, but it's, it's a significant letter in the New Testament. It's, it's one of Paul's, it's in his top three largest letters that took a lot of paper to write this or a lot of parchment to write this. Uh, Romans 1st and 2nd Corinthians are his, his biggest letters. And 1st Corinthians, as, as some of you are familiar with, has a lot in it to discuss and to teach about living within the body of Christ and functioning properly as a body should. And uh, a body, as you know, is, uh, it can go in and out, a person, someone's personal body, someone's human body can go in and out of shape. It can be used for good and not so good reasons. Uh, just because it exists does not mean we can presume that it just functions the way it should. We have to do things, even as Paul would say in later in this book, that I buffet my body and make it my slave. Not let my, my body tell me or my flesh tell me what to do, but he puts it under submission. And Paul is going to reference that later, but it really is a a book that summarizes, in a lot of ways, how to live in the body of Christ. And I, I asked myself as studying, how just how do we have this book? Why do we have this book? Why do you have this book in front of you, two thousand years or so after it's written? And I was thinking, uh, we have this book because a church wasn't getting it right in a lot of ways. Uh, we have this book because a church was young and it was planted, and uh, Paul m moved away and went to uh, visit other churches. He actually went back to Antioch, revisited some other churches, and he was in Ephesus at the time of this writing. And without the Corinthian struggle, you could say, <clears throat> think about it this way, 
Now, God's sovereign. He could have put this in the book of the Galatians. He could have put this in Ephesians. There could have been a book of the Bereans or a book of whatever other city there is in the, in the, in, in the Mediterranean and written to that church. But he didn't. He wrote to the church of Corinth. And Corinth was a, a very unique place, wasn't it? You might know what the reputation of Corinth already is. And in the, in the, in the ancient Near East times, Corinth was known for its, really, its promiscuity. The, the, the temple that was there housed up to a thousand prostitutes. Uh, for that size of town, that would have been huge. Um, that's huge no matter what, but in that size of town, it would have just inundated the town in prostitution, sexual immorality. You can see that there's rivalries in the first couple of chapters that Paul gets right into, and that gra- really grabs our attention. But Corinth was a very unique town, but the gospel had penetrated this culture in around 50 AD, we think. Uh, that Paul would have been on his second missionary journey to this this what had a very this town that had a very ignoble reputation. Um, just some quick history and facts on Corinth. I won't bore you to death with this, but just so you know that it was it was an ancient city. It was long before this this city and uh, right around the from BC to AD, <clears throat> it was rebuilt by. Um, actually, I'm blanking on that right now, but it was destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C. So it goes way back. It had a very uh, affluent culture in the time of the Greeks. Romans destroyed it. It was rebuilt by one of the Caesars, and then it became an affluent city because really its location, its, its, its uh, geographical location gave it this affluence. And I want to show you just a couple of pictures here. If I could use my geeky laser pointer. Does that work? Ooh, fun. Okay, so we know this is modern Turkey. This is modern Greece. Corinth is going to be right there on that isthmus. Uh, As you see, this is now modern Greece, and there's Athens. So we just keep moving through these slides. There's a little bit of a zoom in. You can see we're getting a little closer here. Just want to give us where things are. Philippi would have been over here. Ephesus would be over here. Corinth right here. That's where Paul is. And then this is just a satellite view today. You can see the modern canal that was discussed, I believe, in the 6th century BC, started by Nero and finished in the 19th century. So that took a lot of work. We can move to that. And here's, a, here's another view uh, from the southwest, that would be looking towards that canal that we just showed you. And this is part of the mountain that goes up, and it's called the Acrocorinth. And most cities in the ancient Near East had somewhat of an acropolis where the city was down below, and there could be a fortress up above, but most often it was used for t- a, a temple and um, uh, pagan worship. Now, this is a, a temple that would be down uh, at the ancient city of Corinth, and that's looking back up to that, what's called the Acrocorinth, where that temple would be. And here's the modern canal, and that took them, I don't know if it took them 1,800 years to, to push through that, but you can see if they have it here today, how important this, this trade route would have been. And you think, man, that's such a tiny little, why can't you just ship things around uh, the, the south end of Greece and come back up on the other side? Well, Time is money, right? So if you can figure out a way 
to do it faster and safer, then this is going to prevail. So because of Corinth's strategic location, a lot of thinking moved in and out. You could say it was a city that had a lot of circulation, both in trade and in thinking and in teaching. Uh, Corinth was that place. So Paul eventually comes to it around 50 AD, and you can see this in Acts 18. He goes, as is typical practice, he goes to a synagogue. He begins to teach there. Some people convert and believe that Jesus was the Messiah, okay? The name Jesus. The Jews believe in the Messiah. They don't believe today, broadly speaking, that Jesus was the Messiah. So Paul's practice was to go into a synagogue, prove from Scripture that this man Jesus, who is from Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem, was the fulfillment of the Messiah. And I love this verse in Acts 18 where Paul is nervous, he's discouraged, he's fearful that what has happened to him in almost every city along the way around the Aegean Sea, and now he's in Corinth, he's fearful that it could happen again, but I love this verse. It comes straight from the mouth of Jesus through a vision to him. It says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Many in this city who are my people is the city of Corinth. I love that because it's it's like as if they were God-fears, they had not yet heard the gospel and submitted to the gospel or believed in the gospel, but God knew who his people were in that city. And he had them in strategic places that for his own son, Jesus Christ, was in a much different situation in Jerusalem and was turned over to the Romans and killed by them. In this context, in Acts 18, when you see Paul ministering in Corinth, you have him protected by the Romans, which is very unique. Now, God, if he wants to do that, he protects Paul in his ministry so that the Corinthian church can get some rooting and begin to flourish. So he stays there 18 months ministering to this church. It's later built up by the teacher Apollos. You might know that name, and his name is mentioned in 1 Corinthians a couple of times. And as this church begins to grow and get closer and and watch this, this is really how the book of 1 Peter works too. As we begin to grow and we get closer to one another, and there's movement of life on life, there begins to be opportunities for cracks to show, or, or maybe not like as if it was defective, but things couldn't be worked through because they hadn't come up yet, and that's okay. For the Corinthian church, that was, uh, they were in their infancy when Paul left them. They were built up by Apollos, but now being pressed upon by this pagan culture, not either not knowing or maybe disregarding at times uh, what Paul had previously said, or Perhaps they forgot this was a struggling church that needed a lot of instruction. And that's what caused Paul to write this letter was his pastoral concern and really putting doctrinal confusion to, in order and to put things to rest. Things like factions, immorality, just general chaos in a church because a lot of it was self-seeking 
Rather than using your gift to build up the body, the Corinthians thought gifts were to build up themselves. How much alike we are to the Corinthians. And that's really what I, we want to see this morning. Is It's not the main point, but if I could press upon you that this church was more like us than not like us. These are brothers and sisters from almost 2,000 years ago that stand on the same equal footing as, as we do at the foot of the cross. And really, you think about why is a... You, you might have watched a few old movies over Christmas, and some of the backgrounds are really bad, you know, like they're just, they're, they're, we're, we're new to make movie making in the 30s and 40s, and a lot of those classic movies come out of uh, the, really the 40s and 50s, and, and background, you think about these backgrounds that you know are fake, uh, but they, they help move the script along. Imagine doing every movie just sitting down in a black box and people speaking lines to one another. Imagine that. that you're, that's not going to hold your attention, is it? Uh, but the, the movie have, even, even back then, maybe it was in a car with the, the, the screen going by them, maybe it was being towed in a car, but whatever it is, the background helps you pay attention to what's in front, the foreground, which is really where the attention is. But I think in helping you know the background of Corinth, it's going to help you understand who, this people, who, who these people were and why Paul would write to them. And the Corinthian culture is, it was not too far from us. And he wasn't just writing to a general Corinthian culture, he's writing to the church in Corinth. So that's where we start this morning. Let's look at verses 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So where does Paul begin? Right after his name, look at that word. Paul, second, second word of the letter, called by the will of God to be an apostle. It's the same, it's the right word order in the English as it is in the Greek. It's, it's Paul, he addresses his name up front, who's writing. This is how they did it back then. They don't wait till the very end of a letter. They put the, the who's writing up front of the letter. So Paul's writing, and his first word there after his name is he's called. And it's important for the Corinthians to see, it's important for us to see that the messenger to the Corinthians was divinely commissioned. God's messenger was divinely commissioned. You could say in a real sense that the Corinthians were about to receive news from God himself. Let's not miss that. The Corinthians, through the Apostle Paul, commissioned by God, were about to hear just as much as the Israelites ever heard through the mouth of Moses, just as much as the Israelites had heard through the mouth of Jeremiah or from Samuel the prophet, the Corinthians were about to hear from God through Paul a message from him. They were receiving good news from God. His word always shapes us, does it not? You think of 2 Timothy 3.16, that every word of God 
is profitable to build us up, to shape us, to instruction, for doctrine, for correction, for leading us toward righteousness. No matter which word or sentence or letter or book in the Bible, it's meant to do that. And they were about to receive this message. And you ask yourself, whose words are really down on this paper here? You have a physical copy of God's Word, I trust, or a digital copy. Whose words are those, really? Are they just Paul's words? Well, yes, they are Paul's words, but are they just Paul's words? This is important for us to reckon with this morning so that it's not just ink on a piece of paper or it's not, oh, that's nice. That's a, that's a nice letter he wrote. Well, in a lot of ways, it, it's, if you look at it that way, it was not so nice in, in, in some ways. It was, it was very direct, uh, that, but we could still look at it from a distance and say, oh, that's nice that the Corinthians got some help from their friend Paul. But it's not just that. Look at it. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, meaning Sosthenes was there with him in Ephesus when he wrote uh, most likely, he's well known to the Corinthian church. He could have been the Sosthenes mentioned in Acts 18, although there's no clear indication of that, so we'll just leave that as a question mark. But he's well known to this church, certainly, to be included in this letter. But it says that Paul was called by the will of God to be an apostle. And he states up front his apostolic authority, so not to flex on them. You have to understand this. Now, some of the Corinthians might have been thinking this, but we have to understand that Paul would write from an apostolic, authoritative perspective so that the Corinthian church knows that when he, what he's about to address isn't just Paul's opinion or a few great um, maybe some experience from an older believer, uh, so just, just some tips from a good friend. This is the Apostle Paul writing to, sure, many knew him, maybe knew him very well, but he's establishing his apostleship not for personal glory. And it was often under attack as we get through 1 Corinthians and into, even into 2 Corinthians, if you read that, his apostleship was an easy target for many because he wasn't included in the original apostles that Christ personally chose on earth. Christ chose Paul through allowing him to see the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and I think at other times and places as well. When he's in the Arabian desert being, being taught by, by Christ himself, as Galatians alludes, to, Galatians alludes to, Paul had seen the risen Christ, but was clearly a different type of apostle, as he even says in Galatians chapter 2, that Peter was commissioned as an apostle to the, to the circumcised, while Paul was commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles. And this apostleship was often under attack, and we could see it later on in some of these letters and even in Galatians. He was an easy, his apostleship was, was really an easy target. So why state this? If you ever remember writing a research paper, remember research papers? You're probably really glad you haven't written a research paper in a, I don't know how long. Some of you might still be in that zone. I, I really don't know. 
But a research paper, at least a good research paper, what has citations, right? You have solid sources. And I don't know if you were ever like me, but remember like winging it on some of your, some of your citations? You're like, oh, I'm going to jam this one in there, toss this one in there. And if you had a lousy professor or just a, a, a teacher who was not, I guess, uh, in tune with that, you could put the paper down, slide it through, and if your writing was decent, you might get a decent grade. But then you hit the professor or that teacher that was like, uh-uh, you're not going to get away with this sloppy citation anymore. And they, they just shredded your endnotes or your bibliography and all your citations because why? Because they're familiar with the original sources. They know that you interacted with eh, some fluffy stuff rather than the best on that topic. Or maybe you cited something that was a really old argument from 60 years ago, but you weren't up to speed on the current conversation of where that topic was at. A good source paper has just that. It has citations that the community that understands that topic knows that they're, they're, they're the authority on that topic. And a good professor will shred your paper and use a lot of red ink if you're winging it on those citations. And that's why Paul establishes his apostleship, because with no apostleship, no authority. And with no authority, I, I could read this letter, if I'm a Corinthian, and literally throw it in the trash if I disagree with it. Or if I, it, it comes down to the reader's opinion of how they feel about the letter. But if it's an apostle writing commissioned by God, authoritative, that is God's word to these people. And what they decide to do with it is not a matter of listening to man, as he would tell the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 4.8, he says, if you disregard this, you're not disregarding man. You're disregarding God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. First Thessalonians 4.8. He doesn't say just that God gave me the Holy Spirit or I was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, God gave you the Holy Spirit. And you're disregarding that Holy Spirit through re if you're rejecting the apostolic word. So, in summary of this messenger being commissioned, the writer, sure, is Paul, but the words are God's words to this church at Corinth. Secondly, you see in verse 2 that God's people are divinely called. Not only is His messenger divinely called, this is so important that His people are divinely called. Now, if you've cheated and know the book of 1 Corinthians, or you just come in this morning with that knowledge, I hope this grabs your attention and, in a sense, blows you away in the way Paul treats this and reminds them of their calling this morning, because you know of some of the things that the Corinthians were struggling with. You know of what he says about their background, and perhaps some of them were still dabbling in. But it's important that God's people know that the church is His doing. The church is God's doing. Notice that verse 2, some of the things pop out. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place 
call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I want to break down this verse just a little bit so we understand what it means that this church of God is called. First of all, there, there's a specific location named, right? So it's not just to the church anywhere. It's to the church of God in Corinth. This is a local body of believers that had been uh, ministered to by Apollos and planted by the Apostle Paul maybe five years before this. We're not exactly sure of the date. There's ways to helpfully date the book of 1 Corinthians around 55 A.D. is, is, is the best conjecture. But it's a few years after is what most scholars would think. Uh, but this is a specific location. So these men and women called out of our particular GPS location. Okay, and we saw, we saw the map. That was a real place that is a real place. It was a real church with a real, real lives, real people being called out. And really, this, this is an assembly. It's not just to individuals called out. It's to a group of people called out in a particular place, with, which highlights the local nature of the Corinthian church that these people associated with the local church in that town. But also, uh, it says to a specific people. Notice that it's to the church of God that is in Corinth, the place, but it begins to describe the people, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So it's in Corinth, but it's also, he's writing to people who are in Christ Jesus. Not that they are supposed to identify more closely and more more, um, I guess, progressively toward the Corinthian culture, but it's actually the opposite. Sure, you're in Corinth, but God is literally taking you out of that culture while leaving you in, if you know what I mean, taking you out, calling you by His name, in a sense, plucking you, saving you from this pagan Corinthian culture. That's what the Corinthians need to know. The word church means that literally called out from, okay? Ecclesia, those are two words, ek meaning out of, and klesis, call. So those words were jammed together, and it generally meant an assembly. It could mean an assembly of anybody, really, but it came to be the assembly was synonymous with the church, and this church is a specific people called to be sanct- or to those who are sanctified. Notice that there's a past tense. Now, we don't normally do this, but I thought it would be helpful this morning to tell you the form of this verb. Isn't that fun? The form of this verb, I don't know who's a grammar geek in the room, but it's a perfect passive participle, right? You want to say that? Perfect passive participle. You're like, what are we doing? Uh, perfect passive participle, the, the mood, the tense, uh, this, this, these are all important when translating a verb. And the fact that it is, they, he says that they are to those sanctified in Christ, it's an amazing v- verb form because the perfect means that it has been done. It has been done. The passive meaning that it's been done to you. You didn't do the doing, the doing was done to you. Okay, that's the passive tense. 
Now, that it's a participle, not just a regular verb, but it's a participle. It acts like a verb. It's been done, but it has ongoing effects and implications. That's, sometimes those can be strained a little too far and, and, and uh, perhaps overdone. But in this case, the perfect passive participle really does indicate the right action that's been done to the believer. You have been sanctified. But your sanctification has implications and ongoing results. So you're, in a sense, you're being sanctified. It's a lot out of just a few letters. But it's important that these Corinthians know that they have been sanctified in Christ. Why do we have to start there? Why do we have to start that you have been sanctified in Christ? Some of you who know what's about to come in the book of 1 Corinthians... Think about that for a second. Imagine if we skipped this. Imagine if we skipped <clears throat> their position in Christ and just got to the do's and don'ts of what they were getting wrong and a few things that they were getting right. Imagine that. Why would that be powerless? Or why would it be unmotivating as a Corinthian? Here you are stuck in this pagan town that seems like there is absolutely no hope. There's a lot fewer of you than there is of them. Paul's gone. Who knows what, where Apollos is at this moment? But it can seem like that, right? But if you just have to get down and like do more push-ups or buckle down and serve more, to get to perhaps the lighter parts of the epistle that talk about love, that talk about serving, using your gifts to the glory of God, not to the glory of self, that talk about why you shouldn't take your brother to court and demand your rights, perhaps why you should even be motivated to be sexually pure. If we just skip over the identity and their position in Christ, you tear out the foundation and the motivation for pursuing Him. And that's what Paul describes here. He's writing to a specific people that are sanctified in Christ. And what are they sanctified and called to? Look down at verse 2 again. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. There's our word again. Paul's called. The Corinthians are called. They call upon the name of the Lord. Look down at verse 9. He likes this word as he opens his letter. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. Look over or down at verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Look down at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. We'll save that for later. Would you look over with me to Ephesians? Turn over to the book of Ephesians for just a minute as we really see the condensed version of this, I believe that 
1 Corinthians chapter 1 is really an expanded version of what he is communicating to the Ephesians in just a few short verses. But I think it's helpful to read, to see it in a different, to a different people, to a different church, different wording. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You can turn back to 1 Corinthians. It's important that we understand that this calling is clearly done by God. I don't call myself The church doesn't even really call me. We don't call each other in this sense. God used somebody or some sermon or some text to do what? To call you. To place an individual call on a believer's life and to begin that process of drawing men and women unto the Father. Jesus gave you the ears to hear His voice and respond in repentance. That's the effectual call that's talked about. And when this word is used, call, it always is talking about in the New Testament this effectual call, like Romans 8.28, those whom He called, that famous verse, that's this, that God has wrapped Himself around you and nobody's able to pluck you out of His hand and He is drawing you toward the Father. That's the effectual call that's being discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Why, again, ask yourself the question, why do the Corinthians need to know this up front? Because it's going to provide every motivation for their, whole, their pursuit of holiness to spring off of. If we don't build a a, a solid foundation of what God, and I mean if we don't build as in doctrinally understand this, if we neglect that doctrine of what God has done for us, our motivation suffers, does it not? Life becomes almost just misery or a grind or sheer human strength to, to push through. Or perhaps reaching out for distractions or some kind of buoyancy to move you through life that circumnavigates a dependence upon Christ. But in order for the Corinthians to pursue this holiness that they are called to, they have to understand that they are called to be saints. Now, their calling is to a purpose, right? It's not to nothing. It's like, hey, you're called, have fun. Or, hey, you're called, do whatever you want to do. Hey, you're called, why? You're called, the text says, you're called to be saints. So you are called, but you're called to a specific purpose. There's a direction to this. You're called to be holy ones is what that means. And I have news for you this morning. If you're saved, you're a saint. All right? You don't need an ecclesiastical authority to... (laughs) after you're long dead and you've done a lot of good things, 
to vote on if you've made sainthood or not. Some of you are used to perhaps a Roman Catholic background and how does one person become a saint versus the other? That's an unbiblical concept of what the word saint means. Saint means it's just holy ones. You're called to holy ones, to be holy. And I think many modern teachers, I think we've confused this, and I hope I'm not in that group. I think there's a modern, very persuasive teaching out there that is convincing people that you're called to connect with the culture. That's your primary calling, is you're called to connect. You're called to attach so that you can turn the corner, so that you can deliver the sales pitch, so that you earn street cred in order to tell them about Christ. Now, I'm not downplaying the importance of relationship. I, I hope I'm one of the last ones to say that. Um, if you're a disconnected, um, uh, really unfair individual, nasty someone who could care less about people, it is going to be impossible almost to hear the gospel come from that kind of person. Not downplaying the importance of real-life relationship with neighbor and evangelism. But I think it sounds good that your primary goal is to connect with people. But what I've often found is that, that turning the corner ra- rarely, if ever, ever, it ever comes. Because you're always, you're always waiting for that perfect moment to share the most offensive thing that that person could ever hear in their entire life. And so Paul is saying that your call is actually to holiness. And holiness comes with it the idea of separation from a people, not a binding up with and a connection that continues to grow and grow until you take on the Corinthian values versus standing apart from not better than, not in a self-righteous sense, better than the Corinthian values, but in a way that says, I'm God's. He's got his name on me. And he'll remind them of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own anymore. You can't do whatever you want with your body. It's not yours. It's Christ. So therefore, because it's Christ, now honor Him with it to fulfill and to walk in and to work out the call to which you've been called, if He was to say that to the Ephesians. So we're called not for our own sakes, not for our own glory, not for doing what we prefer, but for what God has called us to toward holiness and to grow an affection for Christ and our love for Him and let that push us into the obedience that we're called to, the holiness. So our affections change, our desires change, our values change, our thoughts change, and eventually our actions would follow. They're called to be saints. And this is the Corinthian church. Think about that. The Corinthian church is called holy. And I ask you this morning, if you are in Christ, do you believe that? Do you believe that you are righteous, that you are holy, 
that you're called, that that was God's doing, not your own devices or your own thought processes that we're, we're able to put it all together and land at that conclusion. If I'm called by God, that is both exhilarating and exciting and also humbling because I know that I don't have the power to do this. Now look at the end of the verse. There's another point we should look at. It says, called to be saints, but not just to be saints as in individuals. You're called together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Clear implications that there's a universal church at play in this text. I think it's really interesting. He's already said, you're a local church. He's not saying it in those terms. We think of it like that. To the church in Corinth, okay, there's our locale. But then he also says, you're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord. A reference to most likely Joel 2.32, where Paul uses that also in in uh, Romans chapter 10, where he says, anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I think it's interesting that he helps the, the Corinthians associate with the universal church. Why would he do that? If you remember some of the problems in Corinth, if you've read ahead, if you know this book, you know that pride is perhaps one of the chief marks of this church. Things that are done for, for self rather than for the body. So alluding to the universal church will help the Corinthian church understand this is not all about Corinth. This is not all about them. But at the same time, they can be excited that they are in. <laughs> you're in. You're included. But with that inclusion, there's absolutely no reason to brag or think that you're above the next church where perhaps Paul is writing from in Ephesus, that we're not above them. It's humbling because it's equalizing, but it's exciting because they're, they're told that they're in. They are God's people. They're included in God's family. And this is, there's, there's not a lot of references to the universal church, but we clearly can put it to, we can see the dots and put it together that clearly God is doing a work in Ephesus at the same time he's doing that in Corinth. And he's doing that back in Jerusalem and Antioch. And now 2,000 years later, he's done that all across the globe. So this is humbling, but exhilarating for the Corinthian. Lastly, verse 3, God has a message for the Corinthians that begins with a reminder of redemption. Common phrase, perhaps one of the most common phrases you find in a letter is this in verse 3. Look at it with me. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this, these words to a chaotic, young, immature, perhaps floundering church 
God's words to them are this, from him, through Paul, hey, grace. Grace to you and peace. Isn't that an amazing message that he has for the Corinthian church? Some of you are not separating yourselves from sexual immorality. Some of you are taking brother to court to demand your rights. Some of you are using your gifts to look out for number one. Many of you are ungenerous with the other churches, is Paul going to say to them in just a few pages. But he begins with this message from God the Father himself and Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Grace is this. Grace to the Corinthian would cause them to say, there's, a, there's, there's, there's something that's been given to me. Grace is my past, but it's my present too. But grace would compel them to think about what's been given to me. I've been given Jesus Christ. The, the very sins that I struggle with, the characterizations of the church body that I'm a part of in Corinth, that's why Christ died. That's been given to me. Grace has been given to me. And it reminds me that I do have a special status, if you will, of relationship with God the Father. It reminds me that grace has been given and peace being the fruit of that grace. So peace has to come after grace, but once grace is there, peace ensues. Peace fills in. It's the fruit of a right relationship with God. And I want to remind us, it's, peace is not your state of mind. Peace is not your organizational skills and feeling like you got your to-do list done. Peace is not whatever your self-assessment of your abilities is and that you've, you're meeting that. It's not because you're balancing all of your responsibilities well. It's not rehearsing your assets and feeling good about where you stand financially. Your peace is the fruit of reflection upon God's grace. And I like this, this quote here from this commentator, R.C.H. Linsky. He says, Grace is always first, peace always second. This is due to the fact that grace is the source of peace. Without grace, there is no peace. But when grace is ours, peace must of necessity follow. I hope we understand that this morning. And notice the source of this. Grace to you and peace. What's the source? From God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Think to yourself of that famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that what? Saved a wretch like me. Saved a wretch. Or think of this in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me emphasize this as we conclude. As we move into the book of 1 Corinthians, the reflection upon God's grace and knowing the peace that comes from that will be the key in your motivation 
to implement what is about to flow from the pen of the Apostle Paul. If you start with duty and eventually get to, through all the duty, then you become something. Our motivation is sapped from the get-go. And our ability is not there in the first place. But if you begin with identity and you say you are in Christ, you're sanctified in Christ, you have the hope of the gospel, this is what's been done to you outside of your own doing. That's been given to you. I want to press upon, do you have that peace? You know what I mean? When you you feel it in your shoulders or you feel it in your neck or you feel it in your soul that God is not coming after you because he crushed Christ on your behalf. The, The weight that's lifted from the sinner's shoulders provides the fuel and the energy and the joy for that holiness to, this, to spring off that firm foundation of grace. I hope we're reminded of this this morning, that, that we remember our redemption and we remember, we recognize that God did this and called us right here in Santa Barbara, Right here in Santa Barbara, just as he called the Corinthians out of Corinth, he's calling us in and out of the culture that we live in. And I'm looking so much uh, forward to working through this epistle together and having Michael really lead us through a wonderful book that God gave to the Corinthians, but God gave to us as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, it's, it is amazing grace that we stand here and um, even have thoughts of you that we have been given hearts and eyes and ears to ponder your work and to even sing your praise and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because of your great grace that's come to us. Lord, we never want to take that for granted. We never want to um, move right past our standing in you. So Lord, I pray that you would grip our hearts with this gospel every day, every day, so that in the smallest ways and in the toughest ways and in the ways that we think are insurmountable, God, that your grace would meet us in those moments to live a life called by you, but unto holiness to your glory. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.